the golden city of a hundred spires, and the new tourist mecca of Eastern Europe. Prague is a marvel. Spared the devastation of the 20th century's wars, magical and romantic Prague is Eastern Europe's best-preserved big city. I'm Rick Steves. On today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves, you'll meet Hansa Vihan. Hansa is a native of the Czech Republic, a tour guide in Prague, and the author of my Prague guidebook. Hansa knows his intoxicating city like only a local can, and he's taking us along. From appreciating Europe's finest Art Nouveau facades to finding its cheapest and best beer, Hansa's tips will help you get the most out of a trip to Prague, or at least pique your curiosity. We'll also take your calls as we share travel dreams. Travel with Rick Steves is ready for takeoff right after this. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're going to Prague in the Czech Republic. Boy, when you think about Prague, you're thinking about the Cinderella success story of European tourism right now. It is such a popular destination, and for good reason. We'll learn all about Prague from a man who calls it his hometown, coming up as we travel with Rick Steves. And when you live in a tiny mountaintop village in the Swiss Alps, what could be a better way to make a living than running a youth hostel? Petra Brunner provides cheap beds for young and old alike in her scenic mountainside home of Gimmelwald. We'll check in with Petra to see how things are going at her mountain hostel, coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. First, let's see what your travel plans are as we open the phones and email. 877-333-RICK or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And we've got Brandy on the line in Chicago. Hi, Brandy. Hello. How is everything? Everything is very good today, nice and cool. Oh, that's good. Yeah. What's on your mind from a travel point of view? I am saving up for one big year in Europe. Um, I work for myself, and basically I'm looking in a couple of years to take a sabbatical. So I am wondering what kind of advice you have for that kind of long-term travel to keep yourself going and uh, not burn out. Boy, I'm, I'm not a big fan of a year-long trip for mm-hmm. people because... You do burn out, mm-hmm. uh, and you get kind of you just get kind of wasted. Where you wouldn't cross the street for a Raphael, you know, <laughs> if you're normal. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, just we cannot maintain that enthusiasm for ex- ever. When you're thinking of a big, far-reaching trip, I think you want to remember culture shock. Mm-hmm. You don't want to go to India and then to England. You'd want to start mild and work into the exotic stuff. Mm-hmm. You also want to think carefully about the um, the weather, and uh, it can be brutally hot in different parts of the world. Uh, the United States is the only country on Earth that doesn't uh, believe in global warming, and everybody else is uh, just resigned to the fact that summers are going to be hot. Mm-hmm. And they're man, they're they're putting in air conditioning in places that never needed air conditioning in Europe. It's getting more expensive, and you know, I just I don't have much patience for Americans complaining about the heat in Europe these days. Uh, and you hear people complaining about the heat; it is a problem. So if you're flexible, factor that into your planning. Um, I would say it costs a thousand bucks to fly from America to Europe and back, and in, in the worst scenario. Um, I, I would consider the option of not committing yourself to a year away. Um, on the other hand, people do it all the time and they do fine. But I just, I just uh, find if I come home, I sort of collect my thoughts and catch my breath and reconnect and, and then head out again. Where are you planning on traveling when you take your sabbatical for a year? I think I'm going to start out in Iceland with a tour, um, kind of start out easy and then hit uh, the U.K. and Ireland, mm-hmm. up through Scandinavia, down through the Baltics, um, then do Germany, Switzerland, Austria, down through Eastern Europe, and then Italy, France, Spain, Portugal. Wow. That, and you got a year to do it. I do. Well, that's wonderful. I, you know, head off and, and try it. You got, uh, it's so easy to communicate with people back home these days, and you can have people uh, email, sending you, mailing you care packages along the way. You don't want to carry guidebooks for all of that. You don't well, want to carry winter clothes in the summer and so on. And I'm hoping to meet up with people along the way so I get that little bit of, you know, friendship. And Oh, you'll meet up with a lot of people. And when you stay put for a few days, all of a sudden you become part of the community. In, in many countries, they say, you know, the first night at the pub, you're, uh, you're a guest, and the next night you're a regular. 
Excellent. So when you're in, especially, you know, in Britain and Ireland, uh, take advantage of that. Uh, it's easy for Americans to connect with the American expat communities, and maybe that's not what you're looking for in Rome or Paris. But if you're away from home for a long time, I find it's very nice to connect with American expats. They've got their own radio stations. They've got their own weekly newspapers. They've got their own churches and coffee hours after church and their own uh, sports clubs and, and you name it. So it is realistic to connect with Americans abroad if you want to sort of catch your breath culturally and, and, and reconnect with your home culture. Great, great. Yeah. Hey, well, good luck on your trip, and well, uh, um, I wish I had a year to go on a sabbatical. <laughs> I'm working on it right now to make it happen later. That'll be great. Well, let us know how it goes, Brandy. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Joa from Laurel, Washington. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for calling. You're welcome. Good and, to talk to you. And where are your travel dreams taking you? Well, I've just returned from a month of living in Egypt. Wow. With a friend who teaches there, so it was a great experience for me. Where were you in Egypt? In Mahdi, which is a southern suburb of Cairo. Okay. Now, to me, Cairo is like an urban jungle. It is. It's, it's just amazing how many people are packed in such a small space. Never been painted. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's true, I yes, just... or finished. Much of it isn't even finished. Oh, man, tell me about some adventures in Cairo. Is it a good place to explore? Well, it's a wonderful place to shop, if you like that, and you can get around so easily in a taxi cab that will take you just about across town for less than $5. Yeah. You can go exploring through the con, the Khan Khalili. Khan Khalili. But actually, to get out and go inside the shopping mall, if you can call it that. It's it's just a rabbit warren of little places that you can need sometimes to be led into and led back out of to find your way back to the street. Now, did you have guides helping you, or were you just on your own? We did. We had friends who had experience take us, and we also hired um, individual guides. On the tour through Old Cairo, we hired a guide to take us on that. Now, did you feel when you went shopping, they were getting a kickback wherever they took you? Not at all. We were at shops, and we didn't have to buy. That did happen on other tours where a driver would stop, but you could get out of it easily enough and just say, nope, that's it, I'm not interested. In fact, the, the old Cairo tour, to go right down through Islamic Cairo, was before the shops even opened, and we just looked through some of the places. And Now, did you feel comfortable in the back streets of Cairo? It's kind of, isn't it kind of overwhelming? I, I felt totally comfortable day and night. Um, one thing that helped was that we had a taxi cab driver that we knew, so we could arrange to be let off at a certain time and ask him to come back and pick us up, and he would be there. Wow, that's great. And that really made us feel very comfortable. And many of the taxi drivers have cell phones. So if yeah. you have a cell phone, you can just call them and tell them where you are, and they'll come pick you up. And you had a cell phone? Yeah, um, yes, we did have a cell phone That's because great. I was living, you know, I was there with friends who lived there. Now, did you go out to Giza, Joa, with the Great Pyramids, the three Great Pyramids? I did. I went there again with a hired guide mm -hmm. and on a private tour. You know, just actually, it was just our taxi driver took us. Now, the the um, wages are so low that it, it's not extravagant to have your own guide for the day. Not at all. Um, I did the same when I went to Luxor in the Valley of Kings, and all yeah. I we hired. I, my daughter was with me. And it was just the two of us with a guide. What would and, it cost Ballpark Joe to hire a guide for a day? Um, a guide was around, oh, it was around 100 pounds. And that's about $20. Yeah, I was going to say 20 or $30 for right. the day. And you've got, you've got a, a very classy local expert to be your help. And to kind of herd you around the crowds, you know, we would be going through the same places that busloads of people would be going, listening oh, yeah. to one guide. They'll grease the skids. And when you have a guide, there's sort of an unwritten law that the hustlers kind of, you're taken, you know, so the hustlers aren't going to be bugging you so exactly. much. Exactly. They would just say, no, thank you, or, you know. That's just, worth 20 bucks right there. I think so. Yeah. And on our, t our tour of the Valley of the Kings and Queens, our guide suggested that, well, the Valley of the Queens is going to be just about the same as the Valley of the Kings, those tombs. And he said, how about taking a look at a supervisor's tomb? And we got to see a marvelous set of paintings in the tomb of someone who would have been an engineer. Well, now that's why you need a guide, because mm -hmm. when I was in Luxor, we're talking about Luxor now, that's an overnight train ride or an all-day-on-the-boat south of Cairo. And we actually flew. Okay, or an hour flight. And you are just overwhelmed by how many great ancient King Tut kind of things there are to see yeah. and do down there. And how do you sort through that all? Well, with a local expert, they can say, well, this, that, and this are all the same, so just do that because that's the best one of those, and try this for something entirely different. 
Yeah, and that was really successful for us because you can look at this stuff all day and not even know what you're looking at, really. Right. Did you go on a felucca ride? I went on a felucca ride. Okay, first of all, our listeners don't might not know what a felucca is. You got Think about this. It's hot and muggy, and the sun's going down, and it's cool on the Nile. So you hire a traditional old boat, right? And it's a sailboat, but it's generally pulled up and down the river? Well, actually, the one that we went on used the sails. Mm-hmm. So, and it's very large, flat bottom sailboat. So there's mm-hmm. room in there for a table that's like six feet by three feet. So you take a picnic. Mm-hmm. There are benches all along the outside with interesting carpets on them. Mm-hmm. And we had our picnic and our wine, and we're sailing and watching the birds dip and dive and the sun go down. And now, was um, this a tour, or was it just you and your travel partners on this privately? A friend and my daughter and myself. We just went and approached uh, yeah. a. They're all, there. The, They're all there trying to get some business yeah, for six bucks. Yeah, one that she had experience with, and so after we made the deal, we hopped on and sailed until we just, we were finished. We were there yeah. for at least two or three hours. It would have gone on longer. The price wouldn't have been more. Yeah. And we made our picnic, and then it's kind of an un, it was an unwritten code that whenever you're with a guide or someone who's sailing the boat for you, we make a picnic and then we hand some of it to our guide as well. Oh, that's great. And they graciously accepted, so we were all kind of just sharing from the same picnic, and it was very special. I remember, uh, apparently you had a wind. We didn't have a wind on one of our trips, so the guy had to pull us up and down the Nile. Right. And at first I was a little uh, uncomfortable. I'm laying, laying around lounging like some pharaoh on this boat, and this hardworking guy in his loincloth is pulling me up and down the river, <laughs> and I'm popping grapes into my mouth. And after uh, he made me feel very comfortable, though, and I was paying him probably double what the going rate was, and it was right. still dirt cheap for me. And I, got, I realized it's kind of like having a bicycle rickshaw in India. It's just you're providing some employment. They're working right. hard, and... Um, they're thankful that you're there, so relax and have a good time. Yeah. And it was a real highlight for me. If you get if the intensity of Luxor gets too much, it's so much it's so beautiful to hop on a Falucca and just lose yourself in the reeds of the Nile. Yes, I agree. That's great. Did you feel comfortable there as uh, an American who didn't understand the the language and the culture too much and so on? I, I did. I learned a little taxicab Arabic uh-huh. and um that got us got me by when even even when I was by myself and I handed my address and they turned it upside down and yeah. I had to use my they, words yeah, to they get have back home. The um the local numbers are different than ours, aren't they? They're in every when you hand somebody your address, they have to translate it backwards. Yeah, so that's the first well. thing you want to do as a smart traveler is learn the way to count to ten with the local numbers. Exactly. Because yes. uh, that's important. And also, when you were there a few years ago, there was discussion about some fundamentalist groups in Egypt targeting tourists and hurting their local economy and so on. Did you feel like the fundamentalists were under control and there was any risk to foreigners in the country? There was a great deal of security, and actually we did take a nine-and-a-half-hour drive to the desert to Siwa Oasis. Uh-huh. And on that tour, again, we hired a private van and um, a driver. And on that tour, the um, I guess the tourism department sent an armed guard with us. Yeah, we had an armed guard with us when we were filming. And, yeah. Uh, it was both to protect us against bad guys and also to make sure we didn't film um, ugly parts of their culture to put it on TV in America. Right. And we didn't feel as though he was necessary, although we don't know that. You don't know. We had him along. Yeah, it was probably smart to have him. But uh, I think it's great for us to travel to Egypt and um, give a little boost to that economy and yeah. learn about that beautiful culture. Yes, and I felt totally safe, as safe as I am at home. And uh, f- certainly a friendly welcome. It was, totally. All right. Joa, what a delight to talk to you, and you got me thinking about Egypt here. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Great to talk Good to you. Happy to you. travels. Bye. Bye. Eastern Europe is wide open for American travelers now, and Prague is their favorite city. We'll learn why with my friend who calls Prague his hometown. Coming up next as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, we're going to Prague, the capital of the Czech Republic. And for me, Prague is one of the most exciting new destinations in European travel. It is really popular because it's so well-preserved. It's called the Golden City of a Hundred Spires. Beautiful, rich, Baroque city. So well-preserved, as a matter of fact, that the filmers of Amadeus shot most of that movie in Prague rather than Salzburg because Prague looks more like Mozart Salzburg than Salzburg does today. Prague offers lots of fun and adventure for travelers. If you're on a budget, boy, oh boy, you're looking for classical music, you can spend $50 for a concert in Vienna or $15 for a classical concert in the home of Franz Liszt. You can get beer in Prague, and I tell you, it's the best beer in Europe. You can spend 5 bucks for a big mug of beer in Munich or $0.50 cents for a mug of beer in Prague. Also, Prague comes alive when you've got a good local guide. And that's what I've got with me today. Hansa Vihan is born and raised in Prague. He uh, studied at Harvard, where he got a degree in Chinese. He's lived in India. He's lived in China. But right now, his uh, vision is to teach in Prague and also tour guiding. Hansa, thank you for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Hello you, to everyone. You live in a beautiful city. You've seen a lot of the world. You're going to spend the rest of your life probably in Prague. Yes, I will. And there's one thing about Prague that we treasure as Czechs, and that's just survival. Prague is one of the few cities in Europe which hasn't been destroyed um, over the several centuries. We haven't fought in wars for 400 years. So when you look at these incredible buildings, they're not rebuilt, most of them. No, in Prague everything is um, as it once was built. And uh, that's a different experience of going through that city when you have someone with you who can feel the history of those buildings. Well, that's it's what... not just architecture. It's just something every building has a story. And it's not a story which was recreated by rebuilding that building. That story is within, within that building. And every period has its own way of um, constructing. And it tells you something about, uh, about how people lived at that particular time. Okay, so the main square in Prague is called Wenceslas Square, named after king, good King Wenceslas. We all know that name. And it's a long, rectangular, uh, like a wide boulevard, basically, that functions as your um, gathering point in the city. Take us on a walk down Wenceslas Square and just tell me what kind of, uh, how your culture intermeshes with what you would see as you take that walk. Well, Wenceslas Square is a great walk for the 20th century uh, history of uh, the Czech Republic. My grandmother was there in 1918 when Czechoslovakia was proclaimed on the 28th of uh, October. That one square has everything from the architecture of the 20th century. It starts with this beautiful hotel, Europa, which is beautiful art niveau. Prague, along with Budapest and Vienna, were the centers of art niveau in Central Europe. It has this uh, 1930s uh, posh malls. One of them belonged to the family of our former president, Václav Havel. This is a, a posh mall, like an over-the-top shopping mall. Exactly, 1930s, with a huge dancing uh, floor down, downstairs where you have some very posh concerts in the 1930s and where also the kids go dancing because in, in Prague we still have a little bit of that old world and the idea of the old world was that everyone has to know how to dance waltz and how to dance polka. It's Hip still kids. trendy. Everyone, everyone, everyone has to do that. And you do a little waltzing and a little rap. Exactly. In Lucerna, we have our proms. We have high school proms right by the Wenceslas Square. So you're not walking through a tourist city, although it might seem... There are things where people do their things that they always done. Staying with this uh, dance floor, Hansa, somebody told me that today it is sort of uh, retro or trendy that people will be going to these discos and listening to songs that were censored from the 1980s, I think. Is, that, are people, is there still songs out from the days when you listen to it, you think, oh, those were the bad times when we couldn't say everything we wanted to say? Well, there's, at, at this point, there is taste for everyone. I wouldn't say there is any one particular trend. Uh, for the songs that were censored from the 80s, there were more songs by bards, someone like sort of the Czech Bob Dylan, who would go around and sing freedom songs. This somehow is not as popular nowadays. It's uh, more that kind of a trash, uh, trash pop from so the 1980s. So there's not really a need for a Bob Dylan now that you have all your freedom, huh? That's not true, uh, because uh, it's still the the two most popular singers are, I would say, two people who kept our soul going through the 1970s and 1980s. And just as I was back home, best-selling CD in the Czech Republic is poetry 
sung by one of these uh, one of these bards. So now, were these guys up on the balcony when you guys got your uh, Velvet Revolution? Well, one of them one of them was. So Recreate uh, that. What year is it? What's going this on? This was in 1989. It, um, things were happening everywhere in Eastern Europe in 89. But for us, it wasn't the same as for you sitting by American TV because we didn't have that media. We knew from Radio Free Europe, from Voice of America, something was happening. There was key for us, these radio stations, because there was our only connection to what was actually going because the communist media was under control. So it started on the 17th of November and it grew up. And by the end of November 89, all of these people who were banned from the country came back. And many of them were these bards and we saw them up in the square. Bards meaning folk poets, folk troubadours poets, of the culture. Exactly. And uh, singing the songs we had to sing uh, in secret. And so we were all greeting them with our keys and ringing and singing. And so tell me this. You got this balcony there. and you got your heroes. You got uh, what, uh, Dubček. And, Dubček uh, came up there. Dubček was the hero from the 1968. Yeah, he wasn't allowed uh, in public. And uh, then Havel was there. Havel was the leader, natural leader of the revolution. Rock there was stars this up rock there. star. There was a priest uh, up there. Uh, and then you got how many people in the square? Um, the square fits 300,000 people. It was time for them to show them that it was time to go. And, uh, your government. Our government. So we'd pull our keys and start ringing them like if they were bells. So they pulled and, their keychains out. So there was everyone ringing their bells, uh, ringing their keys. And that's a sign. It's time for them to go. And we said it's the time for the dinosaur uh, to go. Uh, because by that time, we thought the Communist Party was a uh, species which was headed for extinction. And it was. It wasn't. They're back, and they've got 20% of uh, popular vote. 20% of the people in Czech Republic uh, today. This last November, we had a 15th anniversary of the Velvet Revolution. And uh, there was a uh, big meeting in the parliament, all of the the different parties and their speakers. And one of the people who speak in the parliament is the head of the Communist Party. And when he came up and started to talk that nothing which happened in the 15 years was good, well, several members of the parliament just left the parliament, several state. So it's actually a big debate, this uh, whole heritage of communism and uh, what we should do with the fact that uh, in our elections, the Communist Party, which hasn't really changed from the one from before 89, gets 20% of popular vote. Wow. And uh, so in some ways in the Czech Republic, the situation can be compared to what happened in Germany in the 1960s, kind of thinking what uh, what to do with this heritage what our parents did during the communist time, what they had to do. Hmm. That's something that has to do with time. Time is such an important uh, thing to control. Like in Prague, the, what is the biggest tourist site you think about in Prague? It's the astronomical clock. And everyone comes and stares at the clock. And uh, the important thing is that during the communist times, we were not allowed to refer to the Prague clock. Every time you said, what's the time? You had to say, well, it's the 12 o'clock Moscow time. You're so, kidding. Yeah, it was always you referred time to the particular place where uh, who was governing, was governing in the time. So 12 it was 12 o'clock Moscow, Moscow time. time. When you listen to Radio Free Europe, it was 12 o'clock Munich time. And when you listen to BBC, it was 11 o'clock, uh, it was 11 o'clock London time. And so just bells and times is a big thing. So, so when you got your in, independence, now you could have... Now it's the entire time is measured again by the Prague astronomical clock and uh, by the bell which is up on the Prague uh, castle and not by the bells that are in the Red Square in Moscow. Let's talk about being a tourist in Prague. It's an overwhelming city. We don't have a lot of uh, handholds. We're not. Uh, it's all new to us. You've got the spine for a tourist, which is called the Royal Way. Well, Prague is a great. It's one of the one of its. Uh, appeals, it's not just that it's a beautifully preserved city, but it's a city that you can manage in a short time. It's not as sprawling as, for example, Budapest. And uh, so everything is within a half an hour walking distance. And you have this spine, this uh, royal walk, which uh, starts in the cathedral where the Czech uh, king would be coronated. And then he would walk down through the Malastrana across the old Charles Bridge. One of the most beautiful bridges in Europe, by the way, the Charles Bridge. It's one of the oldest Gothic bridges still surviving in Europe as well. And uh, it would go down to the main square, the old town square. Now, let's say you got five, six days for the Czech Republic. You probably don't want to spend all that time in 
Prague, you'd make a side trip. Exactly, and that's a way to get experience Czech culture more because Prague is a hit tourist destination. So um, the people you're meeting there are running the tourist industry. But when you go to a town like Kutná Hora, which is this beautifully preserved medieval town, which once was the largest uh, silver mine in Europe. Kutná Hora. Kutná Hora. It means the mining mountain. So and that was uh, this very important silver mining. It was a silver mining. Now it's a town of about 30,000 people. It's the headquarters of Philip Morris in the Czech Republic. Oh, is that right? And uh, that's what keeps the city going. And uh, it's a beautifully preserved medieval city where you talk to locals on the street and eat with with them. So we've got Amy in Chicago on the line, and, and uh, Hans says she's planning a trip to the Czech Republic with her husband and in-laws, and they're working on side trips. Hi. Hello, Hello Amy. It's so exciting that you've expanded your empire to radio. This is oh. great. Well, <laughs> this is a lot of fun to bring travel to uh, all of our radio listeners, and we've got what's really a thrill for me is to have somebody like Hansa here talking about the Czech Republic, connecting with you in Chicago, and you're planning a trip, and obviously you're going to go to Prague, but you're wondering about side trips, or what's on your mind? We are, and as far as side trips, we were wondering um, if you think it's a good idea to take a group tour to Terezin, and also whether Chesky Kromlov is worth the trip when the castle's closed, as it is in the beginning of March. Wow. Uh, don't go away, Amy. Let's deal with these questions. Terezin is the uh, notorious concentration camp, that is, at one of the predictable side trips from Prague. And is that worth going on your own or with a guided tour? What would you say, Hansa? Well, guided tour saves you time and worries. Um, it's You can get on the bus. The bus leaves you right by the entrance uh, to the Terezin ghetto. But if you, there's a number of travel companies in Prague, you don't have to arrange anything ahead. You can just come and the evening before you can arrange uh, for a trip uh, the next day. So to there's Terezin. tours going all the time to Terezin and, and prices are quite inexpensive or reasonable from Prague for side trips, Amy. And probably, assuming you'll get a good English guide. For Terezin, I would go with the, I would go with the tour. It just makes things easier and you get an English speaking guide. And, and that that concentration camp, by the way, is very interesting because it was a fortified town, and apparently the Nazis just uh, said, "Everybody out of here! We're going to use this to, uh, to as a concentration camp, really, for primarily for Jewish people." I think one of the things that it also served as it was uh, it was a show house of the Nazis for the Red Cross. They would invite people from the Red Cross to show that uh, they were dealing treating well the Jews, and this is what they had for a culture that they had a theater and that they were able to paint. It's a place where you can see the resilience of the Jews during that period, that even when they knew they were headed for uh, Auschwitz, uh, for these extermination camps, they just kept going. They just kept on having theater performances every night. And, and there are uh, powerful, powerful they, exhibits They there. were just not willing to give up. I would go. I would go with the tour company that would get you. And even in Prague, I think at the Jewish Museum there, there are exhibits about the children's art from Terezin, and it's just uh, heart wrenching material. Amy, you're also wondering about Chesky Kromlov. Right. Um, we're wondering if it's worth the trip when the castle is closed. Uh, I would say it's even more worth the trip. The advantage is that you will have Chesky Kromlov to yourself and that far outweighs the castle. It's more, Chesky Krumlov is a city more for the setting and for the experience of this medieval town, which is preserved so well that you'll find few places in Europe. It's on a river, in a valley, and uh, in March you won't see it overrun with tourists like you would during the summer. And the castle... To be honest, I go to Krumlov because of the sites outside, not inside of the castle. For clarity for our listeners, Chesky Krumlov is the most wonderful little Rotenburg-type town in the Czech Republic. And I went there for my first time a couple years ago, and I was expecting it to be a touristic nightmare, just a zoo, because everybody raves about it. It was remarkably uh, relaxed and casual and not a real tourist trap. Of course, it's got plenty of tourism, but it's fun tourism. And Amy, the town is just a delight. There's great hotels, wonderful restaurants, lots of history. And, of course, it's got this wonderful castle sitting on top. Uh, according to Hans, I would, I would second his opinion. Uh, it's a great city with or without the castle. We can't wait to go to Prague. So. Oh, that's great. Have a great time, Amy, and, and thanks for your call. Thank you. Thank Bye-bye. You. When you're in Prague, there's a, a few unique things. When you go to Prague, you can hear Mozart, for sure, and there's lots of classical music, and that makes a lot of sense, and it's inexpensive. There's two or three concerts a night, literally. But one thing that's different is the Blacklight Theater. Well... There are two ways uh, to think about the Blacklight Theatre. One is from the, from the point of view of the theatre. 
In 1920s, 1930s, Prague was a cultural center in Europe. It was one of the few cities which had free environment and uh, you had all these different kinds of theater flourishing. As a result, you had all these various innovative styles merging together. To understand what it is about is uh, imagine you're living in a country where a regime changes every 10, 20 years and every time a regime changes, all the names of the streets change and uh, what was black becomes white and uh, the other way around. And so the Black Light Theater is that sort of experience of absurd. It gives you a sense of what it to be in Central Europe. And, uh, and today it's fluorescence and it's uh, the black light theater the idea behind it is that everything is in darkness and uh, what you see is only these fluorescent lights <laughs> the people who run the theater are in black so you don't see them so these things are appearing uh, things are appearing on the stage and you don't know where they're coming from and there's this sense of magic about it as i said it's something which may resemble how history moves in central europe and i think you can only find it in czech republic or only prague Prague is uh, the only place. If you if you think of something similar, you might know in Canada there's a uh, Cirque du Soleil, that's a little bit similar. Cirque um, du Soleil. Yeah, some several people on my tours told me that it reminded okay. them of that. Another unique thing about Prague, and I understand it's uh, it's a way people could travel without being able to travel, is the tea houses. Tell me about this tea house culture. Well, the biggest explosion that uh, 1989 set off in the Czech Republic was travel. Because basically from 1938 till 1989, no one was allowed to travel. So suddenly everyone, especially young people, wanted to go somewhere. And uh, Western Europe quickly became boring for most of them. And everyone started going to Thailand and South America and uh, China. And the result of that is that they brought that culture back with them. And now when they're in Prague, they don't want to sit in a Czech pub, but they want to be back in Thailand. So you have all these tea houses that give you this sense and create a new space in Prague, a space where it's quiet, you don't have that rowdy pub, it's non-smoking. It's not just, it's, it's Czech. It, it has this taste of India, it has this taste of Thailand, but it's a Czech understanding of it. So that's interesting. The old-timers and the tourists go to the beer halls? Exactly. The, but now most doesn't mean that uh, the tea houses would pull people away from beer halls. You st still go for a beer, but you go to, for a beer in the evening and you go to a tea house during the day. There's plenty more from Hansa on Prague and the Czech Republic, coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. We're joined today by Hansa Vihan, one of my tour guide friends and the co-author of my guidebook to Prague and the Czech Republic, on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's talk about beer, because uh -huh. when you go to Czech Republic, I swear, you get the best beer in Europe. Now, I like a lager. I like a, mm -hmm. a Bavarian beer, you know, the um, Lohenbrau and mm -hmm. so on, and Andex beer in Munich. And then I went to Czech Republic, and the beer hits your table like a glass of water does in the States. I mean, you sit down, you want a drink, you get a beer. That's how you recognize a pub, basically. If you have to wait for a beer, or if you have to wave at a waiter to get you a beer, it's just bad manners, and you bad. don't go back there again. Now, the beer is strong, too. I mean, for my first visit to Prague, I had a beer for lunch, and I didn't realize it, but, I mean, I was sightseeing on what I called Czech knees after that. I just didn't get much done in the afternoon. Is well, the beer Rick, uh, it's, it's just a matter of building up, uh, building up your allowance levels, because basically what we drink is this Pilsner beer, and Pilsner basically means a diet beer. Uh, Pilsner is after a town in the Czech Republic, Pilsen, which is one of the major industrial centers, and in the 19th century... People could no longer take this beer they drank in the Middle Ages because they no longer worked in the field. 
that beer was really thick. It had much more alcohol in it. So in Pilsen, which was this industrial center, they came up with the idea, let's make sort of a diet beer. And so they started to make Pilsner beer, which uh, this that's kind the beer of, I'm that's, talking about. Yeah, that's, that's the beer I'm talking beer. about. That's I love it. It's called it's light beer for us. Now, what's the process when you're drinking a beer and you're going to toast somebody in Czech Republic? There's something a little different. Well, the most important thing you have to look in the eyes. Mm-hmm. That's uh, it's the eye contact. It's you're toasting to each other's health mm-hmm. because beer is really something which improves your health. That's important. It helps your stomach. It helps your digestion. It uh, helps your thinking. So we don't go to get drunk. It's a matter of when you're discussing an important discovery when you're a scientist. You go to talk about it about over a beer, and depending how much inspiration you need, you just keep on drinking. It's very inexpensive. It's very good. Alphonse Mucha is one of my favorite discoveries when I was in Prague. This Art Nouveau artist, uh, just very important for Czech people. So many people don't know who Mucha is. That's the one museum you got to see in Prague, I would say. And not only the museum. Actually, I got so excited by Rick's excitement about Mucha that uh, I got myself into Mucha more than I ever did before, thanks to Rick. We know Mucha mainly through his posters, through his poster art. But uh, there was something that Mucha did in his first half of his life when he was in Paris. And uh, once we were through that, he came back to the Czech Republic and uh, he had an idea that uh, the artist must also serve his nation. Since 1913, he started to work on this uh, series of uh, huge paintings called the Slavic Epic. And this last summer, I went down to southern Moravia, into this sleepy old town, where in the castle is the exhibition of these enormous 18 canvases. What's the name of the town? It's called Moravsky Krumlov. Moravsky Krumlov. The Moravian Krumlov. It's like the Chesky Krumlov. That's high on my list. Alphonse Muka, don't miss that when you go to Prague. We have a question on the email from Susan in Milwaukee. She just came back from her third visit to Bratislava, the Slovak Republic, and she says it's beautiful, safe, welcoming, and why do so many tours bypass Slovakia? Everybody goes to Budapest, everybody goes to Prague, and nobody goes to Slovakia. Czechoslovakia. Uh, when did they have the uh, separation? You call it the well, Czechoslovakia was founded in 1918, and uh, it uh, separated on the 1st of January 1993. 93. So then you got the Czech Republic and Slovakia. Slovakia. Now, in my mind, Czech Republic is the place to go, and Slovakia is like, why bother? Suzanne differs. She really likes Slovakia. What's your take on Slovakia? What do you think? Well, the Czechs think Slovakia is the place to go, and Czech Republic, why to bother? Slovakia. Czechs think that. Czechs think that. I just came back from, I was in Slovakia in the mountains. What's the charm of Slovakia? It's uh, the Alps without the people. Really? So the undiscovered Alps? I would say uh, it's the one place in Europe, perhaps with Romania, where you have the most wild nature. And uh, you have these old towns in Slovakia, like Levoča, like uh, Bratislava, like uh, Banska Šťavnica. These are former mainly mining towns. The reason why people don't go there is just there's not much tourism. So the hotels are not set up for that. You have to get used to the fact that not many people will speak English and that uh, there isn't the tourist industry that is in Prague. Traditional lifestyles? You get that you can go up in the mountains and there are shepherds up there. Uh, Slovakia, why it doesn't get so much uh, attention is uh, it has a lot of problems economically in the sense of restructuralization. So not as prosperous as the Czech Republic? It wasn't as prosperous in the last 10 years, but now actually the economic reforms are going much better there and the growth rate is higher than in the Czech Republic. Two questions, Hansa, about the Czech Republic joining the EU. Now there are new EU regulations. For instance, I heard food, because of EU regulations, must be served within two hours of coming out of the oven. And I've also heard that's a problem for Czech cuisine because much of it is supposed to simmer and be served longer than that. Most of the meals in Czech Republic were made at 10 o'clock in the morning and were served all day or even the next day. Now, this is illegal? Now it's illegal in Europe. What are the chefs to do? Well, they have to cook it fresh and uh, it was a big deal when it was coming, but it's not such a big deal anymore. So you're managing? We are managing. Czech food is still good even if it hasn't simmered all day? No, the only problem is that we have our own rum, which we make from potatoes. And uh, they outbanned us and uh, we're not allowed to cool it rum anymore. Say it ain't so. And the other thing is the Sudetenland. We all know that from our history. That was the land the Germans took. They said it was German. Uh, Nazis lost the war. 
Czechoslovakia or Czech got back the Sudetenland. Now, because you're a member of EU, anybody can buy any land anywhere. And I understand Czech people are concerned that rich Germans can just flat out come in and buy the Sudetenland. It's not as easy that you can just buy land uh, anywhere. There, there are laws about that. It's very specified. So you've joined the EU, but you still have maintained some sovereignty on these kind of issues. Well, the government that is coming into power in 2006, really without uh, <clears throat> doubt, is uh, more nationalistic and uh, doesn't support, for example, the constitution. Doesn't support the EU uh, constitution? Doesn't support the EU constitution. Could Czech Republic secede from the EU so shortly after joining? Uh, well, it's not a matter that we will secede because of, because of that, but there's a number of other countries in Europe which doesn't support the European constitution. Okay, so the European constitution has some rocky waters ahead of it. I think so. When will Czech Republic have the euro? Uh, the expectation date is 2007, but we would have to get our uh, budget deficit on uh, track, which is not likely to happen. So to be part of the Eurozone, you can't just have budget deficits. You can have budget deficits, but manageable budget deficits, and uh, ours are not manageable at the moment. I don't know if America could get into the Eurozone. <laughs> I doubt it. I think the American deficit would be beyond the permissible amount of deficit. Hey, Hansa. This has been great talking with you about the Czech Republic and Prague, and I want to thank you very much for sharing uh, a little bit of your beautiful country. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now we're traveling to my favorite corner of the Swiss Alps, the village of Gimmelwald. And I've got on the line the woman who runs the youth hostel in Gimmelwald. And we can actually hear some of the uh, fun that's going on there because it's filled with young travelers enjoying the Alps. Petra Bruner, how are you doing? I'm doing really fine. How are you doing, Rick? I'm doing good. What's going on at the youth hostel today? We have a lot of happy travelers right now experience the mountains. Some are playing outside the guitar and others are sitting in a hot tub enjoying the view. That's right. You have a new hot tub at the youth hostel. Yes, we have a hot tub now outside, which which is um, heated by wood. There's like a little fireplace inside, so we put wood in and it's about 100 degrees oh. Fahrenheit every night. So when people come back from their hikes, they just sit in there and enjoy the seat. Oh, that's perfect. Now, I want to uh, let our listeners know that I'm talking to um, a woman who lives in a little village high in the Swiss Alps where there's no traffic. It's a town of how many people live in Gimmelwald, Petra? There live about 120 people. 120 people, and uh, I would say more than half of them have uh, one of two family names. There's the Voitzes and the Almonds, is that right? The von Almonds, that's correct. Yeah, so there's a lot of, uh, it's a tight community, we can put it that way. And there's uh, several different places that you can sleep. But my first night in Gimmelwald, and it's my favorite part of the Alps, it was in your youth hostel back when there were goats sleeping in the basement. It cost about two francs a night to sleep there, and um, it was very, very rustic. There was no hot water. And today you've got a new hot tub for the hostelers. They're sitting out there with a firewood-charged hot tub uh, surrounded by the Alps. That's quite uh, cushy living in the Alps. People really appreciate it. I think it was a good addition. What does it cost now to stay in the youth hostel there? It is 20 francs per night. 20 francs per night. So that's about $14, $15 American for a bed. That's correct. And then the uh, travelers have access to the kitchen where they can cook for the price of groceries. Yes, they can. And how many how many beds in a room normally, Petra? We have 14 beds in a room. All right. And we have a co-ed dorm for couples and boys' room and a girls' room. So it's a little community there high in the Alps. Yes. And those really nice people come here as singles or they don't even know each other, but they mostly make friends. And there's sometimes there are friendships who last all over their life. We actually just have um, a couple getting married in a few days here, and they met here, and they're having their wedding up here. You're kidding. So some, some travelers came there. They didn't know each other. They met at your hostel. They came back and are getting married there. Yes. They, they fly their priest in and their family. They arrive in a few days, and they're having a ceremony outside in the woods, oh. and they're going to have lunch here. Oh, and where, where and are they? they stay at the honeymoon suite. It's actually very nice. And, and where? Well, are it's very simple. It's just called the honeymoon suite. I know. Well, it's, it's kind of cute. I think it's the honeymoon suite because it's just one double mattress. That's correct. <laughs> Instead of six bunks or something like that. Where, where are the bride and groom from? 
They're from California. From California, and they're they're flying in the whole wedding party to the youth hostel. Yes, they're a little wedding. There are twelve people. We actually choose happy birthday in here. I can hear they're singing happy birthday. <laughs> So we've got travelers from all over the world coming together for $15 a night, high in the Alps, in this little village where everybody's got the same last name. They're having a birthday party. You know, there's some graffiti on the wall in the hostel, or at least there was when I traveled there. It said, if heaven ain't what it's cracked up to be, send me back to Gimmelwald. I love that notion. Hey, Petra, uh, you told me a story once you grew up just across the street from the youth hostel in Interlock, and then you had sort of a dream about running a youth hostel or something about that. Can you share that with us? Yes, it's just I grew up in Bernigan which is outside of Interlaken, right on the lake. And there was a youth hostel just opposite our house. And it was just really nice to meet all the people. And um, I just always thought it would be nice to, if I couldn't travel, to meet the people who are traveling. And what's nice about the traveling people or the backpackers, they always appreciate everything. They're very, very friendly people, and they're not demanding. It's like they're always happy. I, I always... Fine, I have a job like a priest from people getting married because they're always happy people. I never meet grumpy people, only happy people, and that's that's the blessing about my job. And that's something to be very thankful for. And uh, yes, you brought up an interesting point. For a lot of people who run bed and breakfasts and youth hostels and so on, they travel by welcoming people from around the world into their home or into their little place of business because that's a kind of travel, also, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So you had the opportunity to uh, grab that hostel when it became available in Gimmelwald, and your husband and you basically renovated it. I thought it was very interesting when you told me you married into the village there, and uh, there's a lot of very traditional people, and your husband's um, father really had an attitude problem about you being a business person in that village. Is that right? Well, it's just just a foreign world for him. I mean, it was a foreign world for a lot of local people, at least for the older people. If you think that a lot of 60-year-olds never left Switzerland or not even left Interlaken, right. like my father-in-law has never been abroad, they, they just don't know. They just have know their own culture, and it's a kind of a shock for them to having people here. But right now, I think after those 10 years as running the place, I think it, it's good to the village as well. Also, for let's say for the young people here, they come and hang out at the place, and it's really, really good. So your father-in-law was kind of the old guard that wasn't that enthusiastic about all these modern ways coming into the village, uh, and he wasn't that enthusiastic about his uh, son uh, supporting his wife in a business other than farming, I understand. Has, has your right. father-in-law changed his attitude a little bit over the years then? He did now, yes. So he comes I'm to the hostel. I'm happy to say that, actually. Oh, that's great. It's that, really nice now. That was sad when you told me that your father-in-law never visited the hostel after all the work you and your husband did. That's correct. That's correct. He actually just came in a few days ago the first time to have a pizza. I was very happy about that. Oh, that's wonderful. It took him a few years, but <laughs> he finally came. So now tell us in Gimmelwald, uh, it's a springboard. What are all these kids doing? How, how, what's the advice you can give to young travelers or people who really want to connect with the nature in Switzerland? What's some good advice? Here in Gimmelwald? Yeah. Here in Gimmelwald, you, if you come up to Gimmelwald, you just have to love nature. I mean, there's no nightclub or no partying or... It's just nature. You have to love the mountains, the waterfalls, and just being outside. When you come back at the hostel, of course, there's community people talking together or eating together. It's just very easygoing. Petra, how many people are in the youth hostel, for instance, right now, tonight? Uh, Tonight we have 45 guests staying. Are you full? So Yes, we are pretty full. Is it important for people to call in advance to book a room? Uh, they just call me two days ahead or send me an email, and if they send an email, I can book them right in. It's not really a problem to get in. Oh, that's great. Now, now do, I imagine people from all over, all over the world uh, stay there. How would you uh, characterize your clientele? Where are your travelers coming from? Uh, most of our travelers are coming from the west coast of America or Canada, and then in the months of September, October, we have a lot of Australians traveling. And what's really interesting, we also have older people staying, like we just had a couple the lady was 76, and the, her husband was 80 years old. And they were traveling three weeks through Europe, and they stayed one week in Gimmelwald. And they had a really, really good time, like, sharing the atmosphere of young people, and it was very sweet. So you run the youth hostel, and if a couple of older travelers come in, you don't think, why aren't you in a normal hotel? You welcome them. 
Oh, yes, of course, as long as they are happy here. Everybody's welcome. All right, so there's no age limit for youth hostelling? No. Not or a, let's say there is no age limit for backpacking. <laughs> backpacking. Now, tell us, I hear guitars. I can picture all these people sitting in the jacuzzi or the hot tub you've got together there. Just look around for us because we're sitting here in America uh, listening to our radio and you're high in the Swiss Alps in a village where, where you've got no traffic, uh, just like a time warp experience, surrounded by the glorious mountains. Okay, right now we have wonderful weather. We actually just have an open glow in the mountains. What is an open glow? An open glow is when the mountains turn all red because of the sun, the sun going down. Okay. We have a few people sitting in a hot tub having a drink and just telling each other just whatever they did today, telling their hikes. And it's just a really, really nice atmosphere. And uh, you finished dinner. You told me you wanted to talk after dinner because you're busy during the dinner time. Yes, we, uh, we also make dinner. We cook uh, cheese fondue and chocolate fondue. For the people, and we had pizza and all sorts of things. Petra, is there a website so people can learn more about your youth hostel? Yes, you can find our website on the www.mountainhostel.com and the directions to find Gimmelwald. And they can also get the specifics if they go to uh, ricksteves.com because we have uh, the specifics on anybody we talk with on our radio show. I'm talking with Petra, who runs the Gimmelwald Youth Hostel High in the Swiss Alps. Hey, Petra, I'll let you get back to your crowd of happy travelers there, but thank you for helping so many people enjoy the Swiss Alps on uh, quite a a small budget. And you've got uh, the Alps in your laps there, it sounds like. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure to talk to you, Rick. I wish I was coming. See you soon. Yes, take care. Bye-bye, Rick. Say hi to your family and to your team, eh? I will do that. Okay. Okay, ciao. Ciao, Rick. Bye. You have a nice time Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Richie, this is your captain, your setter, speaking from the cockpit of Peeny Wall. Any question? You have a nice time in Switzerland. I like it in Switzerland, where I switch the land into upsetter land. We overfly the whole continent, and we have a good jolly good time, sniffing the Swiss air, riding in a magical chair, like Peter Pan and a lightning can. Say now, this is your captain speaking, and I am peaking. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.